0: Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 8 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed.
1: Welcome to Dress. The History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan.
0: And Cassidy Zachary. April, hello. Hello. I'm curious, if you were going to attempt a Guinness World Record, what would it be and why? Oh,
1: gosh. Well, that's really hard, actually. Um just coming to mind immediately i would say maybe most books ever read um maybe world's longest nap i don't know i mean i suppose those two things are rather antithetical to each other maybe i could uh, stay up for a few years reading and then and then follow it with that nap <laughs> I don't know. If you gave me longer to think, I bet I would come up with a few more things.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I was actually going to say, I bet you could get the world record for like most lipsticks in a purse at one time (laughs) or something like that. Largest lipstick collection. (laughs) It did get rather ridiculous the other day,
1: and I stopped myself from texting you, and I was like, I have nine. There's nine (laughs) lipsticks in my backpack. (laughs) But I guess same question to you. What about your Guinness World Record?
0: I think I would like to apply for the record for largest collection of fashion history-related books. Ah, well, I bet
1: you're kind of, you know, plugging away on that slowly over yeah. there.
0: I think my husband would <laughs> say that, yes, I have the world's largest collection of fashion history books. <laughs> and they, it keeps growing every single week, so.
1: Yes. Well, speaking of fashion and dress-related Guinness World Records, listeners, there is a surprisingly long list of them, ranging from the Famous, a category which includes records such as the most expensive sweater ever sold at auction. This happens to be Kurt Cobain's gray mohair cardigan, which was worn on MTV's Unplugged in 1993, which apparently sold for $334,000 in 2019. And not just celebrity-related, there's also the historical Guinness World Record holders for clothing types items, like the world's oldest shoes. And those happen to be a pair of ancient sagebrush sandals associated with several different North American indigenous groups. And some of those casts have been carbon dated to 9,300 to 10,500 years ago. We're not joking when we're (laughs) saying ancient
0: here. Yeah, no. Yes, so these and 15 other records are part of the Dress to Impress spread featured in this year's annual publication of the Guinness Book of World Records, and something that I am pleased to say I worked on as a consultant, collaborating with Ben Hollingham, Senior Editor at Guinness World Records, Researcher Extraordinaire, and today's guest.
1: Yes, and I remember when you guys were working on this, and I was always like, what are they up to exactly? <laughs> so much fun. Uh, <laughs> you were kind of keeping it under wraps. But this is why I am so excited for today's episode, and we are pleased to welcome Ben to the show to talk all things fashion and Guinness World Records. Ben,
0: welcome to the show. Ben, welcome to Dressed. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi. So I am so excited to talk to you. We, of course, collaborated over the past year on this fashion spread for Guinness World Records that we're going to dive into. But first, I'd love to just kind of introduce our listeners to you and what you do. I mean, kind of starting with, how does one become a senior editor for Guinness World Records? What kind of led you to this job?
2: Um, I, I got into the publishing industry the traditional way, which is through random chance I think uh, I kind of stumbled into it by accident. And that seems to be generally how people end up in this line of work. <laughs> They're either like very diligent and they worked very hard to get where they are, or they just kind of ended up working as an editor somehow. I had a job moving boxes for a company that were moving offices. That company happened to be a publishing firm. Uh, I was just out of university and and confused. And they said, do you want to be an editor? And I went, yeah, right. And, um <laughs> it's kind of what I've been doing ever since. It's yeah, it's it's a strange job.
0: Yeah. But I mean, and particularly for Guinness World Records, which is not, you know, not a job that you come across every day, right? There's only a handful of people who get to work for this company and it's such a fascinating and interesting kind of pocket of popular culture that's been around for I think 60 plus years now.
2: It's nearly 70.
0: Oh, wow. Can you tell us a little bit about history of guinness world records for people who might not know this is really fascinating like how the origin story of guinness world records and how it came to be
2: so so it begins with a man with the wonderful name of sir hugh beaver who was the uh, director of the guinness brewery and he was uh, at a um, country house somewhere in ireland shooting Birds, of some kind, you know, it was all very Downton Abbey, lots of tweed and break action shotguns. And <laughs> they were he and another guest at this event got into a argument about what was the fastest game bird in Europe, and he was left afterwards thinking, if only there was some sort of resource where I could definitively say which was the fastest. And that idea kind of stayed in his head for a few years, and then in 1954 he had the idea of what if we made a book. That's like the ultimate argument settler and distributed it to pubs and bars as a sort of fun little gimmick. Um, And they recruited a pair of eccentric twins called Ross and Norris McWhirter, who ran a fact checking agency in London, and they put together the book. And it was a runaway success, and they ended up selling it, which wasn't the original plan. I think they'd originally planned to sort of distribute it to pubs. Right. (laughs) Um, And it became a huge runaway success, and it's just been part of things ever since. You know, we're we're not owned by the Guinness Brewery anymore. We sort of became our own separate thing about 20 years ago, I think. But, you know, we, we keep the name just because it would be confusing if we weren't well records
0: yeah absolutely I mean I guess I should have known there was somehow a connection but I never in a million years would have made it I
2: guess <laughs> <laughs> because it's it is quite a strange beginning for a publishing firm um, yeah you know as an aside I had a quick look on the system and um, we don't actually have a record for the fastest game bird never have um, we don't <laughs> we don't categorize animals into whether or not you can shoot them um, so
0: not anymore. I'm apparently. afraid I don't know the answer to huge question. <laughs> well, I mean, fast forward to today, right? Guinness World Records has expanded exponentially. I would say it's known all over the world, obviously, and is billed as the ultimate authority on record-breaking achievements, which it absolutely is. And these categories include space, extraordinary exploits, entertainment, and sports. So I'm just curious, what, qualifies and in many cases quantifies someone or something as a
2: record. The main things we look for with records is we want them to be something that can be kind of standardized. So is it something that can be like an, like a scientific experiment? Can the conditions be replicated by other people if they want to break it? Uh, it needs to be breakable. So, you know, you can't just have a thing where it's like the fewest fingers, none, and then are right, you going to go from there. Right. Um, although there is the exception to that which we deal with quite a lot in my work as a researcher, which is uh, thirsts. Although they can actually get broken because sometimes we find older things. But um, yeah, and then there's like, it needs to be verifiable. It needs to be sort of measurable. So like there needs to be a number, effectively, like how many of the thing, how long is the thing, how much does the thing weigh, and you need to be able to measure that and, and come up with a, a specific figure for it, which is something that in our research I, found myself quite often getting quite annoyed with writers when you'd come across a reference to like, the biggest uh, biggest plume on a on a feathered headdress, and there's all these <laughs> writers who wrote about how amazing it was and how it outraged London society, and you, like, but how big was it you haven't given me a number like enormous yes yes but but like was it like 40 centimeters 60 centimeters that was huge so alas that's a record that never made it into the book (laughs) because i couldn't get a number for it um (laughs)
0: And you've kind of given us some insights into your job. And something I I loved about working with you and something I learned about what you do is that you do do a lot of historical research into history and and around the world to kind of find these firsts. Um, And you and I worked on locating some of these firsts in fashion history. But can you tell us a little bit more about your job? What is your process for research? And then how do you produce historical records? Do you come up with them as a team or is it kind of, you know, whatever pops into your head that day or something you're reading that inspires it? Because I feel like the world's your oyster for these records.
2: Um, Well, one of the things you're saying about something you read that inspires it is that once you've been doing this for a certain amount of time, you can't switch it off. So you'll be just going about your business, listening to a podcast, reading a book, and you'll go, ooh, that's a superlative. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm, definitely measurable and you make a little note on your phone and it just means that you never quite switch off to the point where you you find yourself avoiding podcasts where you're like I think they're going to talk about record things and I don't want to be thinking about that right now but yeah so the the normal way we do it is we we start with just yeah you know, me and my colleagues my uh, Craig Adam and ashwarya we sit down and we just think through like what what would we like to talk about in this year's book and we then sort of work forward from there we find consultants so people like you and then we will often go off and start looking for potential avenues and obviously that starts the same place everywhere starts which is um wikipedia and you you start with things like that and you start sort of pulling on threads and looking into things and for historical stuff i often make a lot of use of newspaper archives and uh, we're also, i also have a membership to the London Library, which is a research library in London that has a wonderful collection of uh, stuff to do with fashion history, because it's a kind of fascinating place. It came out of a, um, similarly came out of an argument, but a much more acrimonious argument between philosopher Thomas Carlyle and the head of the British Library. Um, he basically was like, well, you know, this is rubbish. I'm gonna start my own library and it's gonna have fireplaces and comfy chairs. And <laughs> but yes, Thomas. so I <laughs> yes. So so we would go so I go there and I just look through books. You know, I, I just grab stuff and go like, mm, that looks interesting. And I spend a day reading through those and trying to just making notes on things that sound interesting. And yeah, and then I, I you know, put ideas to you and I send a lots of emails and I just generally kind of badger people until <laughs> they tell me answers. It means that I often ask very eminently qualified people stupid or childish questions. Um, so I did have to talk to the sort of keeper of historical armor at the Royal Armouries Museum, which is part of the Royal Collection. I was like, what's the biggest cod piece you have? <laughs> and they were like, um... I was like, like, like really big one? I mean, do you have like <laughs> metal ones? Do you have like separate like velvet ones or have they all fallen apart? And um, yeah, she, she was um, a little confused by that line of questioning.
0: Yeah, but it's really actually a fun exercise, I would say for me as someone who has now worked with you to do this. It's really fun to kind of look back and see, okay, well, how can I find this record? And 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 can I even find this record? Can I find something like the first sunglasses? And how would I qualify that, right? But I love it. we could talk a little bit about you and I collaborating. You, of course, reached out to me. I think it was last summer, um, although with COVID, it all kind of condenses, but I believe it was last summer. And we kind of went back and forth for almost a year, maybe several, several months, kind of developing this fashion spread. And I'd love if you, obviously, I really enjoy that you have an interest in fashion and dress history. And I'd love if we could geek out over that a little bit and maybe start <laughs> with you telling me what inspired you to do this dress to impress spread in this uh, 2023 Guinness World Records
2: book. So it's a bit of a, a, a long and convoluted story for me weirdly it starts with making guitars which is a thing i do and that got me interested in making things when you start making things you start looking at everything that is a made thing in a kind of slightly different way and i was invited along to uh, my wife uh, runs the workshops at the royal central school of speech and drama which is big theater school in London and she came invited me along to the final show that they do at the end of every year where all the students show off their wonderful things and I found myself just fascinated by the um the costume designers and makers and their exhibition because they do a lot of historical costuming they make corsets they make period dress um and it's just a it's a very good way if you're a costume maker to show off your skills is to make a sort of you know, la Francaise or something like that, do all of that work and all of the, you know, enormous embroidered fabric and everything. And I found those just really interesting. And I started looking more into this and thinking, hmm, I wonder if there's, because I also looked on our enormous database and was struck by how we don't really have anything in this area or didn't before last year. And I was like, that's, this seems like a large chunk of human activity and history to not (laughs) represent.
0: Yeah. And to be clear, you do have a lot of fashion and dress records. I was looking through them um, kind of before we got off the chat. Um, These are kind of the things that Guinness is known for, right? So you have like the largest high-heeled shoe, which is 12 (laughs) feet tall. And nine or twelve feet long, nine feet tall. There's also the largest pair of blue jeans, which are 214 feet and 10 inches tall or long, and 4- mm-hmm. 140 feet wide, um, which were made in Lima, Peru, in 2019. So those are sort of those like uh, those records you're used to, uh, maybe uh, associating with Guinness. Um, but you did this wonderful just to impress fashion spread that we collaborated on. And what's really fun about it is that it's basically a dressed mannequin that has then been populated with all of these different records that you and I developed. And I'd love if you can kind of talk to us, what was the inspiration behind the mannequin? Because I thought that was such a unique and fun idea as like an entry point to this.
2: So it was uh, kind of a bit of an issue of you know necessity being the mother of invention, because I've done this a few times now where we have started uh, covering a subject we've never covered before, um, or at least not to any significant degree. And that it's always hard to build up. So our standard spread has like seven or eight pictured records. It has like 20, 25 records on it. And that's a lot to conjure from scratch. And so when we first do a subject, we often have to come at it from a slightly less content intensive way and one of the records first records you sent to me was the the dress form slash mannequin of Tutankhamun and I thought that was a really interesting thing and I was thinking like how can I display how can I picture that because it's it's a neat thing but it does seem a bit weird to just have oh I could put stuff on the mannequin yes and then I have and it was just (laughs) like having coming up with a, a context and it was also just just generally tickled by the idea of dressing Tutankhamun up in a big dress. Um, yes.
0: <laughs> And so you're talking about the what you qualify as the oldest mannequin, a life-size torso and head that was discovered in the tomb of Tutankhamen. It was stored by a chest of clothes and is thought to have been used to display outfits for the young pharaoh. And as we mentioned, this is the dress to impress spread, which I think is a first for the publication um, and obviously tickles me as a fashion historian to see you highlight fashion history in this way. So let's talk about a couple other of the objects on view. I actually did not send you this one, but I found this interesting, which is the most expensive hat sold at auction. Um, how did you find that record?
2: Um, I was just looking for I think it was actually one that we already had on our system, but it was quite a long way out of date. It had been broken a few times since we last updated it. But yes, it is discovered that Napoleon's hats, it were hats is the key thing. It wasn't hat. He he went through a hat about every three or four weeks. Cause and he used to give them to people as presents. So they show up at auction auction quite often. But it was it was a very fascinating thing because I discovered you know, obviously we didn't get to mention much about this in this very because you got so few words, but um, which was discovering that Napoleon's uh, hat was a very conscious bit of personal branding. He wore a bicorn hat the wrong way around. You're supposed to wear it with the peaks front and back. He wore it with the peaks on either side. And he also had one that was comically large. It was this huge, <laughs> enormous, oversized hat. And this was his personal specifications and he he did this because it made him made his silhouette very distinctive which made him easy to find if a messenger needed to get a message to him you would just like find the little guy with the <laughs> giant hat
0: and he's of course synonymous with Bicorn hats too yes. um oh, that's interesting and i'm reading the record now that it was sold at auction for two point three million dollars, just this one hat, which you write is one of around one hundred and twenty hats worn by Napoleon. And then we go down the way, and we have the first sunglasses, which is a record that I worked on, referencing Inuit snow goggles dating to the first century CE that were found in Alaskan and Siberian archaeological sites. So those are really fascinating, and of course were worn to protect the eyes from the glare of the snow. Um, made of wood or bone eye mask, perforated by thin slits, they protected the wearer's eyes, as I said, from dazzling sunlight reflected off the snow. And then below that, you have so a record I did not work on, which was most valuable grill jewelry.
2: <laughs> yes, that is uh, Katy Perry's diamond encrusted grill. Uh, where you, you know you, you it's that thing of once you have the mannequin, you start thinking, what else can I put on it? And you do find yourself looking at the face and going, "Ooh, I think we have something for the face."
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm thinking about that now. I guess you could have done earrings. You could have done a nose mm-hmm. ring, um, but maybe that would have even, didn't have room, obviously, to put all those records. But it's kind of yes. endless.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Below that, uh, we have the oldest jewelry, which is a group of 33 perforated shell beads from the sea snail, Tritia gibosula, sorry if I butchered that. Um, I have no idea. Were created and worn at least 142,000 years ago during the early Middle Stone Age. And these shells were excavated um, in a cave near Morocco from 2014 to 2018. So just really assemble... And emblematic of how, you know, dress has always been part and parcel to, um, and adorning the bod- body, people have been doing it for time immoral. Um, so I love really the span of this spread, which also includes the oldest woven clothing, which is a V-necked linen shirt found in the Tarkan Cemetery south of Egypt of the Egyptian capital of Cairo that's dated to 3,482 to 3,102 BCE. Which is a this kind of pleated bodice that's thought to maybe have been a dress. They're not entirely sure um, of handwoven linen, and then that's actually worn under something that you have put on top of it, which is the most expensive sweater sold at auction. Do you want to tell us about that?
2: That, that record. <laughs> um, I actually worked with. This was a few years ago. Worked with. Um, oh, I'm, I terribly, I can't remember his name, but he's. Um, it runs an auction house that do a lot of the uh, kind of rock and roll memorabilia, and this came up, which is Kurt Cobain's cardigan. And one of the things I find fascinating about it is the way that kind of association with a person can transform something that, on the face of it, is very much not appealing. You know, th- take look at, look at it objectively, and it is a slightly manky, uh, stained cardigan bought from a thrift store and worn sort of all the time but because it was Kurt Cobain's cardigan and he used to wear it at gigs and things it's notable and it's also interesting because it says quite a lot about his own personal approach to fashion because it's he would just go to thrift stores and buy old clothes and he wasn't it wasn't an affected grunginess the the grunginess was entirely real they were weird old clothes that he got from goodwill
0: which is tells you something, everything you need to know about fashion, which, you know, takes these kind of personal and street styles and then makes this high-end fancy version of it, right? I think it was Marc Jacobs who brought grunge to the high fashion runway at Periolis and was promptly fired for it. But, you know, this sweater was given meaning, right? Off the street, maybe first glance, you're not going to to notice anything special about it. Um, but it, it really speaks to the meaning that we embed in clothing, right? And the cultural value because this, this belonged to such a seismically important musician mm. who died very young, right? Just 27 mm. years old. So I think that, let's see. 1993, worn for his MTV plugged appearance in 1993 and it sold in 2019 for $334,000. Wow. Uh, <laughs> that is amazing. Probably the
2: highest uh, highest value ever attained by an item of clothing that has mysterious crunchy stain that listed yes. in the description.
0: But again, specifically speaks mm-hmm. to this human, yes. <laughs> um, and that's part of the reason it's valuable. I love this spread, too, because you're kind of playing fashion history stylist, which is something I like to do, um, where you kind of pick and choose things from throughout history um, and style them. So you have the cardigan over the oldest tunic, and then you've paired it with the oldest trousers, which are 3,300 years old. Um, can you tell us what you learned about those? pants, as we would say in the U.S.
2: Oh, now I think this might be an an interesting little glimpse into the, the difficulties we always have. I think the final version of the spread, the oldest trousers were replaced with a pair of ancient Levi's. Uh, because, and this is one of those interesting bits of practicality, which is we just couldn't get the picture for the oldest trousers, but we were able to find a pair of Levi's from eighteen eighty-seven or something. I can't remember exactly when. That were um, so that were the most expensive Levi's, and we had to just mention the oldest trousers kind of in passing. And that's one of those things we have whenever we're putting together these these kind of features of where we're always. You know, there's the difficulty of getting the right pictures and having stuff that works. And, and it can, because we're a, a picture led book, it can sometimes lead to the, the sort of unfortunate things where you come, someone comes up with a great record and you go, know, like, the problem is you're facing to the left in the picture. And if you were just facing <laughs> to the right, the composition would work much better. But, um, yeah, I mean, and obviously,
0: you've pointed out that I'm looking at one of the first spreads that was sent to me kind of to look over. And now that I'm comparing it to the actual book, that was not the only thing that did not make the final cut. Actually, I am very disappointed now because the largest chatelaine is no longer there. What happened? It was-
2: I'm, again, that was a pictures problem. We couldn't get the rights for the pictures of the largest, largest Chatelaine, which was very, very disappointing for me because I, I loved that record. I spent a lot of time <laughs> digging around in big books called like Chatelaines, a history. Yeah.
0: We talk a lot about Chatelaines on the show because April and I are huge fans of them. They're just one of those like fashion history objects that has gone away and and doesn't remain, but they're so fascinating. Mm. Um, so, I was thrilled that you were working on that record. It was a decorative belt hook with 14 unique items um, from the 1860, I think, to 1880s, possibly made for Princess Alexandra of Denmark, wife of the future British King Edward VII. Well... I'm sorry to have seen it go. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, this is the thing which is, you know, as I was saying, this was very much the kind of our first run at doing this subject and I think we'll probably be revisiting it again in the next oh, year or two.
0: Please because, do. You know,
2: as you're saying, it's a there's there's a lot of material there and it's just a question of of finding the right people to badger about things. Um
0: well, continue to badger me. I had a blast. Yeah, um, yes. Tell us what you learned about the most toxic makeup.
2: Oh, that, that's always fun. That's the the uh, was it white lead? Uh, it's um was just you just smear heavy metals on your face um, to make your skin look whiter, and and then it would make your teeth fall out, and it would make you really irritable and uh, forgetful and confused. And interestingly, I think a lot of people associate that with Elizabeth I of England but I as I recall I'm not sure if she actually wore it I think it's no one's really clear on that because I think interestingly Elizabeth I is one of those ones where her a lot of the like accounts from her personal wardrobe I think it was called survive and I don't think there are any references to that makeup but I might be misremembering that but yeah it's it's an interesting one of just you know it's one of those Topic that's often used as a an example of sort of vanity and the, the dangers of and it, it's yeah I find I find it very interesting.
0: But how accurate is it? Right, that's always the question we have because you can find documentation of anything anywhere. People who mm. sold these products, but how often did people actually use them? Right, yeah. that's really the question. How often did
2: they wear them? How toxic were they in reality? And one of the things that often comes up is how much more toxic than everything else were they? Because there was that interesting, I was reading, again, I think it was a Napoleon thing, talking about someone testing it for arsenic because they had this theory that maybe he'd been poisoned. And they were like, there's really high levels of arsenic in his hair and his sweat. And they're like, no, that was normal for people in the 19th century. Everyone was just slightly covered in arsenic at all times. <laughs>
0: kind of permeated a lot of, of yeah. different things, including fashion, um, green fashion specifically, as we have talked about on the show. I also happen to know you had a lot of fun with the longest fashion shoe record.
2: <laughs> oh, yes, yes. The, the Poulain,
0: uh, the, the pike, aka the, the pike, pike Shoe, or Krakow. Yes, yeah, so
2: I, <laughs> I, I, I loved the fact that it was, one of the things I did enjoy about it. it is that a lot of the, the narrative about fashion history focuses on this idea that it's something frivolous that women do. Whereas the pike chew was an almost exclusively male thing, and it was utterly ridiculous. <laughs> and <laughs> to the point, where, the point where I think it was several c- countries actually passed laws banning it. And it didn't seem to be for any reason other than, this is stupid and annoying. Why are you doing it?
0: And it was a status symbol, right? And then it just became about who has the longest Krakow.
2: Yeah, look how long and pointy my (laughs) shoes are. They're so long, I have to have strings tied around my knees to stop them from dragging along the ground.
0: Yeah, yep. Super fascinating what people have done to decorate their bodies throughout time and history. (laughs) Including the codpiece, the aforementioned codpiece.
2: Yeah, uh, I was writing about armor a bit recently, medieval armor, and that led me back to the codpiece and learning that apparently... Cod pieces in sort of period dramas downplay how um, eye-catchingly large they were, apparently. Sort of 16th century cod pieces were um mm, quite something.
0: Yes, a symbol of power and virility and kind of we're coming out of that period where men used to wear long floor-length robes like their female counterparts, but then they kind of shorten, 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 and then they become this doublet and you're revealing the legs um, and the, you know, package. Uh, and dress listeners, we've done a fashion history mystery on the cod piece. Uh, if you want to go back and learn more about that, you can listen to that that episode. It was super fascinating. Um, we've also, of course, done an episode on the chatelaine. So now we've kind of made it all the way down and there's four different examples of footwear. Can you tell us about the oldest socks? I love socks. I think, I don't know what it is about the fact that there are socks that survive, that are extant from like thousands of years ago, but I just find it incredibly fascinating. Well,
2: One of the things that is particularly interesting about socks is that unlike a lot of garments, they are like quite complicated. You know, it's not, Sort of two panels of cloth sewn together. It's it's fiddly, and especially these ones that they have separated toes. These ancient socks. So quite a lot of work and effort went into these ancient socks.
0: And they're dyed red, which again, as we know historically, is I don't know if they dyed it with cochineal, but you know, dyeing something in the past thousands of years ago was not uh, was a very labor intensive process. Mm. And let's see, these are a pair of red woolen socks that would have been hand woven. They were discovered in an ancient Egyptian city um, and date to the 4th century CE. And as you said, they're divided into two toes, which enable them to be worn with sandals. And then you've paired that with the most expensive shoes from a film sold at auction, which I I'd give, I'll give the, our listeners a second to think about uh, and maybe guess what these expensive glittery red shoes are. But I think I've just given it away. Mm. Do you want to tell us about these ruby slippers?
2: Well, they are a, a wonderful thing because they're a great sort of confluence of all sorts of things. Where they were, they were the color, film, and the very. They were very uh, just interesting thing where they were a fashion object and they had this sort of the weird significance in the story and the, I, yeah, the way that they have taken on this kind of life of their own, because they have been an incredibly valuable collector's item for quite a long time. They've changed hands several times, along with a few other things from that film. And I, I do find that the, the kind of significance they've taken on as objects quite fascinating.
0: Cultural and pop cultural um, significance, um, of course, worn by Judy Garland in The Wizard of Oz in uh, 1939, sold for $666,000 on May 24, 2000, and it's actually one of five pairs that survived from their production. Dorothy's slippers were silver in Al Frank Baum's original novel and were likely changed to better stand out against the Technicolor Yellow Brick Road. How do you kind of condense... This is something I, you know, found with working with you. You know, we had like the record we created and then there was additional information because obviously you're condensing as a fashion story. And this was really hard for me. You're condensing, (laughs) maybe as a podcaster, museum curators have to do this all the time for museum labels, but like you find all this research, all this information, and then you're like, okay, now tell me, give me two sentences.
2: (laughs) It it can be. It's it's one of the things that I'm always trying to explain to new consultants, which is the thing that the further information, all of those words are important for the writing of the incredibly short thing, because, you know, you get things like you need one word you need to say, like, You say it was made. You're like, was it made? Was it cast? You know, how was it assembled? You need need the word and you need all this information to know how to condense it down without saying something, without changing the meaning or getting something wrong in the act of condensing it down. And so it it is quite strange because you end up writing, you know, I think the longest record I've written was more than a thousand words of further information. And the actual thing that made it into the book is about 40. (laughs) <laughs> back, like two sentences at most. Um,
0: but if you're like me, that research is the fun part, right? It's getting into those archives and and transporting yourself back into history and imagining these people who are.
2: I wouldn't have written that much yeah. if I hadn't gotten carried away. <laughs>
0: I'd love if you could just tell us a little bit about maybe do you have any particularly special or meaningful discoveries records you've encountered? Do you have favorite records, fashion and non-related fashion records? It's
2: fine. So, there are one of the things that happens quite often is that I will have an idea for a record and I'll go digging through the archives and the the frustrating thing is that I will often find things that are amazing stories don't have the record. So um, a few years ago, I cannot remember how this idea popped into my head, but I was like, I wonder when the first getaway car was used.
0: (laughs) Like in a heist getaway?
2: Yeah. When was the first time that somebody committed a robbery and then had a car specifically to get away before the police arrived? And this So the accepted wisdom was that it was in 1911, and I thought, that doesn't sound long ago enough. So I started searching through all these newspaper archives, phrases like, you know, automobile and escaped and things like that, and I I eventually found a case from 1903 involving uh, a robbery at a church in northern Spain somewhere. But in the process of finding that, I discovered a group called the Red Auto Gang, who were based out of New York City in 1905 or 1906. And they consisted of two men who were, I think, both chauffeurs by day and burglars by night, and their girlfriends who were both uh, Broadway showgirls. And it was this amazing <laughs> sort of Gilded Age scandal involving the showgirls and this, you know, they were driving out into Long Island and robbing the mansions of the incredibly wealthy oil barons. And and it was this amazing story. And, and it didn't have the record. Unfortunately, it was back two years off. So I had to just sort of file that away in a, hmm, one day I'll have to revisit that story.
0: Yeah, that sounds fascinating. We're always looking for stories like that. Um, kind of the scandals or crimes of fashion and passion, so we can r- have an excuse to write kind of one of those really fun, fun episodes about, like you said, criminal escapades um, mm-hmm. th- throughout history. Um, any other, any other particularly meaningful discoveries or records that you love, or types of records that you like to explore?
2: So I think. You know, my my favorite record I've, I've researched recently is, it's another first, I, I shouldn't do so many firsts, firsts are what we try and avoid, but which was the first photograph of a snowflake, which is one of those wonderful records that sounds quite simple on the face of it. You think like, oh, it's just, and you think, oh, well, maybe it was someone in the lab or something. And you discover that it was a man called Wilson Bentley who was a farmer who lived in northern Vermont somewhere. And he had a fascination with weather and with the natural world from early childhood. And his mother was a former school teacher, and she had a microscope. And he developed this weird, elaborate process involving keeping the microscope in a freezing cold shed, and he'd run out into the snow and collect snowflakes on a little glass panel, and he'd run back in, and he'd look at them. And he'd try and sketch them because he thought they were beautiful. And he'd try and draw the pictures of the snowflake before they melted. And he could never quite do it. And he eventually found out that you could get cameras that could be fitted to microscopes. And he had, he spent years perfecting this technique to try and take photographs of snowflakes. And it was his his life's work was this wonderful little thing. And he just appeared at a university one day and was like, I have pictures of snowflakes. And everyone was just amazed by them because, you know, we know of the symmetry and the patterns and we think of that as just a thing that everyone knew. But until like the late 19th century, no one had ever seen that before. And people were amazed.
0: Oh, and they're so beautiful. Yeah. The magic of it.
2: Yeah. And he was he he spent his whole life living on this farm, working He you know It was a working farm and he ran it with his brothers, I think. And he yeah just he would he had a notebook where he kept incredibly detailed uh, information about storms and patterns of weather and he 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 ended up doing some quite important research about you know what what kinds of snowflake form in different kinds of storms and different sorts of this and he, but he was just he he just liked snowflakes when asked about why he did it and what motivated him um he said he remarked To an interviewer, I am a poor man, except in the satisfaction I get from my work. In that respect, I am one of the richest men in the world. I would not change place with Henry Ford or John D. Rockefeller for all their millions. I have my snowflakes.
0: That is such a beautiful and unexpected (laughs) story.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I know, and that's that's the sort of thing that I, I find is these these sort of little, funny little like. Huh? Never, never thought of that. And yeah, but yes, it's, it's a it's a lovely, lovely, strange little story about one man's sort of passion and his life, dedicated to, uh, beauty and the appreciation of beauty,
0: and finding beauty in kind of the everyday right things that you take for granted. Well, then I have a suggestion for you that I don't know if you've ever considered this, but. Mm -hmm. I think you need to start a podcast about (laughs) all, so you can share with us all of the history and all of these beautiful stories that you cannot possibly ever convey in the Guinness World Records books, (laughs) where you only have two sentences, because these are fascinating stories. You've just told us two. I'm sure you have many, many more. So just a, just an idea.
2: We did try it for a while, but I think what we need to do ultimately, I need to commit to a podcast that's just, Ben goes off on weird tangents where I can yes. tell people all about the Red Auto Gang and yeah, all of the other bizarre stories I've encountered over the years.
0: I'm telling you, each of those could be podcast episodes. That is, both of those stories are so fascinating, and I could have listened to you talk about them all day, and I want to know more. I'm immediately (laughs) looking up these first snowflake photographs. Um, So anyways, just a thought. Well, this has been so fun. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I actually don't think I can let you go, though, because I'm sure a lot of our listeners will want to know if they want to submit... Or compete for a world record. So submit an idea for a world record, compete for a world record. How do people go about doing that?
2: So you create an account at guinnessworldrecords.com and you, I think, I think there are, there is, yeah, you just look for uh, the title, you can put in applications. There's, we, we have this quite sort of, you know, the one thing that I would always say is that you need to talk to us, then do the record attempt. If if you do it the other way around, it becomes very complicated and difficult. And, it's it's <laughs> uh, yeah, but no, we have we have a whole department whose job is to just look through applications from the public, and and you know it's it's funny because I focus on the research, I don't do that stuff very much, but it is quite amusing where I'll be I'll be sitting there being like, I need to find a record related to this. And, mm-hmm. and then someone come along and be like, this person, this member of the public, just asked me, is this interesting? And I'm like, oh, oh wow. Yeah, that's good.
0: And really, I mean, it can be anything.
2: Yeah, and and it's it's it is quite fascinating the <laughs> way that you know you'll be you'll be looking at at records for like space science or something. And someone from NASA will just drop an application in the inbox and you go like, oh, <laughs> oh okay, that, that makes things easier. We can just talk to them directly. And yeah, it, it can be a lot of fun.
0: Or you have people who, you know, have managed to put a hundred pencils in their beard, which was featured in this than this most recent. So, I mean, people, it it really has this amazing breadth and range of kind of fun, um, right? To, you know, like science, like you said, and of course to fashion and history. So um, I've had so much fun revisiting Guinness World Records. I don't think I'd opened one in probably a couple decades. So thank you so much for this opportunity to work with you. And thank you so much for talking to me about it. This has been really fun. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Ben, for joining us. This was an extremely fascinating and very fun episode, Cass.
0: Yeah, it was. And it was such a fun and unique experience in my career. It's not every day that you get to contribute to a publication of this magnitude and with such a long history um, behind it. And I have to say that I worked on a couple of records that didn't make the cut for the publication, but are on the online database, which you can check out yourselves. And this included the first designer perfume. I mean, so many people associate Chanel with this accolade, but it actually belongs to Poiré, as you know, Mm. April, who launched his Persian Night Perfume in 1911, an entire decade before Chanel Number 5. So I also wrote a record on the first or original high heel. And this is, of course, something we know from our Men in Heels episode with Bata Shoe Museum curator Elizabeth Simelhack. You know, high heels are most commonly associated with women today, but evidence suggests that they were first worn by men in Persian horse-riding cultures in the 10th century AD, used as a means to prevent the foot from slipping out of the stirrups.
1: And not all of the fashion-related records are actually historical. Something that is so interesting about Guinness World Records are those more obscure and bizarre world records, such as the World's Longest Eyelashes— hair and fingernails. (laughs) And Guinness World Records apparently first opened a file for nail records in 1960 to recognize an unnamed Chinese priest whose fingernails reached 1 foot 10 inches. And if you think that is long, dress listeners, that's actually nothing compared to today's world record holder, nails that are
0: 43 feet long. You heard that correctly. (laughs) (laughs) April, there are records for anything you can possibly imagine and apply for. So the Guinness Book of World Records listeners, the world's your oyster. Maybe we can achieve our world record dreams after all, April.
1: I'm going to get on that world's longest snap right away. <laughs> that does press today, dress listeners. May you consider what fashion Guinness World Records you would compete for next time you get dressed. Remember, we do love hearing from you. So please, if you'd like to write to us, you can do so via email at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you find images and reels accompanying each week's episode. If you would like to find the Instagram content specifically associated with this particular episode, you can check out the hashtag dressed 293. That's hashtag dressed 293.
0: And if you have a moment and want to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always appreciate your support. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each and every week. More dress coming your way Thursday. Dress: the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.